This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. I've always had a deep curiosity for, I guess, logic puzzles, um, trying to understand how things fit together and why they do so. At some point in high school, I learned about the fact that um, microbes can eat all kinds of things that other groups of organisms cannot. So that kind of drew me to environmental engineering as an undergrad. Two years into grad school, I took a summer course in microbiology, and that just changed everything instantly. I knew that I had to stop kind of thinking about the world from an engineer's perspective and transition over to become a biologist. I ended up joining the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. And when I was doing my PhD, one thing I recognized was that uh, methane is mostly produced biologically by this one group of organisms. They produce 80% of the methane that's being released, um, um, emitted to the atmosphere annually, and which has a significant impact on climate change. So I decided I wanted to delve more into the biochemistry and the metabolism of these bugs. So Methanosarsina acetaborans was um, isolated from these dense kelp forests off of the coast of La Jolla in California. So these kelp forests are so dense that the insides are completely deprived of oxygen. And for these methanogens to grow, that is a necessity. They cannot grow in the presence of oxygen. Um, so in that, in, that, in that dense kelp forest is a place where there is no oxygen. And in those places, there's a lot of carbon available. It gives the methanogens the right kind of environment for them to grow. And then as a result, they were extremely abundant there. Uh, and it was easy to find them. So when I started my postdoc, um, the CRISPR-Cas revolution had taken off. There had been many groups... Uh, that had were developed CRISPR technology for eukaryotic systems, you know, ranging from Arabidopsis to mice. Similarly, there had been some attempts to develop CRISPR technology for bacteria to edit their genomes. There had been no such efforts um, on the archaeal front. No one had tried to develop these, these tools to work in an archaeal system. So one of the first things that I did was that I tried to adapt CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing to an archaea, to a methanogen that uh, I knew how to grow in the lab. Luckily, it worked. And that really enabled us to do a lot that happened afterwards. One of the things that I subsequently worked on after developing CRISPR for this particular methanogen uh, was to look at the genes involved in forming methane, uh, specifically an enzyme that's involved in methane formation, called methyl coenzyme M reductase, or MCR. MCR is one of the most abundant enzymes on our planet, and about 80% of all the net, net methane emissions on our planet come from this particular enzyme. But very little is known about how this enzyme actually makes methane. So we thought we could use CRISPR technology to understand more about how this enzyme makes methane. MCR is um, unusual in many different ways, but the one, the one facet that appealed to us was the fact that this enzyme um, goes beyond the 20 canonical amino acids that we typically see in most proteins. In MCR, many amino acids are modified so that they look like something completely different now. 
Um, and what I wanted to understand was why are there so many amino acids, these building blocks for proteins, modified in NCR? And are those modifications important for its function? For instance, there is a very simple amino acid called glycine. In one particular place in the protein, that glycine had been modified to form what we call thioglycine. And in principle, the difference between glycine and thioglycine is the replacement of an oxygen atom with a sulfur atom. But thioglycine is extremely interesting in the fact that we don't know of any other protein or enzyme out there in nature that has a thioglycine in, in the protein. So MCR, up until now, it seems to be the only protein that has thioglycine instead of a regular glycine at that particular location. So that, that was odd and unusual um, and extremely rare. For the longest time, researchers in the field who've noted this have considered that that thioglycine, kind of going beyond the glycine and modifying it, must be really important for this enzyme, possibly important for the formation of methane. And so when we developed our CRISPR tools, we thought, okay, here's an interesting question. Here's kind of this, you know, dogma in the field. Why don't we go and look at what that thioglycine does? Uh, so to look at it, we identified the genes that make those modifications, that take a glycine and make it into a thioglycine. And we modified those genes, we deleted them, and then we converted the enzyme from the form where it has this unusual thioglycine back into a form that just has a regular glycine and looked at the differences between them. And tried to ask the cell, okay, how much, how well are you growing? How much methane are you producing? And once we deleted those genes, we essentially had cells that were making MCR, but now that glycine uh, was no longer getting modified to thioglycine. And the cells were growing just fine under most conditions that we tested and making methane. And what that revealed to us was that this thioglycine is not that important for the cells to make methane. To some extent, we were kind of maybe um, disputing, uh, you know, a hypothesis that was well accepted in the field. What we'd shown was the fact that this enzyme just works fine with the regular glycine, which made us scratch our heads a little bit, because what does it do? Why go through the bother of making this, you know, modification if it's not that important? And to figure that out, we tried uh, subjecting the cells to a bunch of different conditions that we thought were environmentally relevant. Here I'm showing you one parameter that often changes out in the natural environment, which is temperature. So we grew the cells up at a bunch of different temperatures, starting at 29 degrees Celsius, which is on the lower end for these groups of organisms. At these low temperatures, we essentially detected no difference between the, the wild-type strain, so the strain that has the modified glycine, the thioglycine, and the strain that has now just a regular glycine in its place in green. But as we increased the temperature from 29 all the way to 45 degrees Celsius, we noticed something interesting. As the temperature increased, we noticed that there was more and more of a growth defect for the cells that did not have that thioglycine in their MCR anymore. And what that indicates to us is that as the temperature increases, if you ever experience a high temperature stress in the environment, having that thioglycine is really important to keep your MCR um, happy and making methane. And if you don't have it, you probably don't do it as well. So now our new hypothesis for this thioglycine modification in MCR is that it actually helps the enzyme stay stable and stay active under stressful conditions, such as the one shown here, that is high temperature stress. 
So we started out with thioglycine because it was so unusual and so rare. But when you look at um, MCR, we find that in addition to thioglycine, it often has other amino acids that also undergo these changes, that also go beyond that, the 20 canonical ones that we typically see. And after this work, we followed up on some of the other ones. And we're starting to see very similar patterns. Um, most of the ones that we've studied so far, and we've studied three so far, are not crucial for this enzyme to make methane, contrary to what we kind of believed for a while. But they play important roles under very specific environmental conditions. Temperature is often one that we see some, some interesting uh, responses to that make us think that maybe we were thinking of this incorrectly before. Um, you know, when an organism is growing out in the wild, that organism experiences extremely fluctuating conditions. And, and especially if you're a unicellular archaeon, you kind of have to have your defenses up to make sure that you can make your way through those conditions. So if the temperature suddenly shifts, you still need to grow and divide. And, and we think now, we're kind of changing our paradigm and thinking now that these, these modifications to MCR are more to adapt the enzyme to different environmental cues, like temperature, uh, than for making methane itself. So I spent my postdoc studying this one particular methanogenic archaeon um, and developing tools for it. But I'm extremely cognizant of the fact that this is one particular strain, one, one organism. And it's one amongst many that are found in the environment. And what I'm trying to do in my lab is trying to kind of, is being cognizant of the diversity that's out there and trying to see if we can leverage that diversity um, in our understanding of methanogens and archaea. It's an interesting time to be an archaeobiologist because uh, we're kind of in this, this, you know, major transition in thinking about um, archaea from an evolutionary standpoint. And so uh, that leads to interesting discussions and conversations kind of at a big picture level about what archaea mean and how we should study them and what systems should we look at to try to understand archaea. I wish I could pinpoint one thing about archaeal research that I find the most interesting. I think what I find the most interesting about archaea is the fact that there's so much. There's such an understudied group of organisms that I don't think there's one right question to ask. I think there's so many things that we can look at. Visit us at iBiology.org for more free talks from the world's top scientists. Funding is provided by the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of General Medical Sciences.